to bless or not to bless. If you're following along in the way of Jesus' handbook, you've still got your copy. This is kind of a reworking of the scripture verses in uh, chapter 9. If you want to go home and look at that this afternoon, I think you'll find some reinforcing there. Uh, For section, uh, the secret to an unbothered life. Uh, Why bless others? So we continue our series on the way of Jesus. Uh, The marker number two of the way of Jesus, I'm being sent by Jesus to bless others and invite them to follow him. To bless or not to bless, that's the question. Sometimes it would seem so much simpler just not to get involved. When industrialist Charles Schwab was 70, that's his picture in the screen there, he made the following statement spoken for the record in a court of law after he had just won a nuisance suit. He said, I like to say here in a court of law and speaking as an old man that nine-tenths of my troubles are traceable to my being kind to others. Look, you young people, if you want to steer away from trouble, be hard-boiled. Be quick with a good loud no to anyone and everyone. If you follow this rule, you will seldom be bothered as you tread life's pathway. Except you'll have no friends, you'll be lonely, and you won't have any fun. End quote. Suddenly the unbothered life doesn't sound so appealing, does it? As we think today about whether or not we should be blessing others, let's approach it this way. God is a God of blessing. Our role is to magnify God, to help others appreciate him as he is. We accomplish that by blessing others. This becomes especially remarkable when we redirect retaliation. It may even produce opportunities to invite others to know God better. So first section, God is a God of blessing. Ancient cultures produced a variety of gods with different characteristics. Animist religions perceived gods in trees and streams. Hindus believe in many gods. The Greeks and Romans believed in 12 Olympians, including Zeus, who dwelt atop Mount Olympus. I had to mention the Olympics there somewhere, didn't I? But the tales of which read like a wild soap opera. So how can those of Judeo-Christian bent maintain their God is at all good or even bless others? God is mysterious, and it's only as he reveals himself to us that we come to know him. The picture we get of God from the book he inspired, the Bible, is that God is good. The first chapter of Genesis concludes, Genesis 1.31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. In fact, what's God's very first act after creating humans? Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God blessed Adam and Eve. So we see early on that God is a blessing God. In the desert of Sinai, God told his prophet Moses how the priests were to pronounce a blessing in his name. Number 6, 22 to 27. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. That's kind of an odd expression, isn't it? So they will put my name on the Israelites? As if something about blessedness goes right to the heart of who God is, what he's like, his very essence. For his people, he is their keeper, gracing them, defending their peace, giving them his full attention, face turned toward them, and beaming warmly as he gazes upon them, making his face shine upon them. That was to be the routine, repeated word picture the priests were to use in pronouncing a blessing, labeling them as gods, reminding them whose they were. In Jesus' incarnation, we see God take on human form, perfectly sinless, holy, caring. Jesus taught about the Heavenly Father's goodness and caring from the Sermon on the Mount on. Matthew 5, 45 that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That is gracious, sending good things, sun and rain, regardless of whether they're deserved or not. What is Jesus like? Scripture maintains in him we see God's likeness. Hebrews 1.3 the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus himself said in John 14:9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can we sum up Jesus' life? Peter did it while preaching to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house in Acts 10:38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him. Doing good and healing. Nothing wrong with those. Pilate himself at Jesus' trial admitted, Luke 23, 14, said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Jesus was innocent, even though the Sanhedrin, backed by a mob, persuaded authorities to crucify him. Hebrews 4.15, one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus went around doing good, was innocent, sinless. In what he did, he reflected his heavenly father. John 5, 19, Jesus gave him this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. In his earthly life, he did good and healed. His supreme act, though, was in his death, not his life, pouring himself out on behalf of sinners. Communion, as we celebrated last week, reminded us of his blood poured out for many, Matthew 26, 28. So it's deep in God's nature to bless, even to yielding himself sacrificially for the benefit of his people. Next, our role is to magnify God. 
God is a blessing God. He enlists people to extend and unpack his blessing in our context. That makes his rule or kingdom real right where we are. Let's back up a minute to God's great plan unveiled to Abraham. Genesis 12, 3, God saying, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Hmm, that's a global project. How's it going to happen? Through you, Abraham, through God's people. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul sees this blessing come to pass through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Paul writing in the church at Galatia 3.14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Why are we redeemed? Just for our own benefit? No, this says God redeemed us in order that, purpose clause, blessing might come to the Gentiles, particularly in the giving of the Spirit. God wants to use those who trust in him to display his glory, make himself better known to others. Psalm 34, 3 bids, Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. New Revised Standard. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Like you're looking through a scope and magnifying, zeroing in on. The goal here is to help others see how good God is, that he is a God of blessing, to help them appreciate him as he truly is, not as our man-made idols suppose he is, ready to hurl the next thunderbolt out of sheer mischievousness. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Why would the leaders crafting that statement say that? Why would they put that first? The Bible reference they give is 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God to unpack God's goodness and put him on display. Let him be exalted, made much of. Paul knew our natural fallen eyes are not geared to perceive this. 2 Corinthians 4.4 The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So as believers, our task becomes revealing Jesus to those around. Later in the same chapter, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 4.10, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Hmm. Is that your conscious goal when you roll out of bed in the morning? To reveal Jesus' life in your actions each day? Coming to see God for who he is, is to come to know him. He's no longer veiled to us. Jesus prayed in John 17, 3, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. The jackpot, spiritually, coming to know God 
truly. So we assist others to come to know him too. In the New Testament, you find this concept of all believers being priests or representatives or stand-ins, access points, mediating God's goodness to those around. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You belong to God. You're a priest that, purpose clause again, you may declare his praises, expose and publish his excellence. Also Revelation 1.6, it has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To him, Jesus, be glory and power forever and ever. As you go walking around, driving your car, listening to your phone or MP3 player, do you Do other people see Jesus and his glory by your activity? You're a priest, not there for yourself only, but also there for them. Do they detect that? Can they catch a whiff of the fragrance of Christ as we pass them? 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. What's your spiritual waft appeal? Section, we accomplish this by blessing others. Pushing further into this idea of highlighting God's goodness by being as ambassadors of blessing, what does his word suggest as ways of going about it? What does it mean to bless others, practically speaking? Paul understands the promise given to Abraham to be connected with inviting others to follow Jesus and hence receive God's Spirit, that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit, Galatians 3.14. As we bless others, some will naturally become curious and wonder, why are you being so kind to me? To which we could answer something like, I'm a follower of Jesus who calls me to bless others. Then if they're still curious, you can be ready with some simple invitational verses like John 1.12 and 3.15. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Another invitational approach uses what's called the Romans Road. How many have heard of the Romans Road before? Yeah. Uh, These verses point out not just what's wrong with us, spiritually speaking, but also what we can do about it in view of what Christ has already done. Here's one version of the Romans Road. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those are kind of three key passages God can use to kind of quicken spiritual life in somebody. 
Now, that's probably enough, but if you have another couple of favorites from Romans memorized, you can always throw them in too. I like 5.8 and 8.1. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You get the idea. I had the Romans road verses laid out inside the back cover of one of my Bibles. Better for it not to seem like a canned approach, but genuine from the heart, using the scripture promises that are most precious to you. What verses seem to you most essential and to the point for summarizing the significance of what Jesus has done for you? Jesus sends us on the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, to be invitational when others ask why we're blessing them. He also gives us the great commandment to love God with our whole being and to love our neighbor as yourself. If we love them, we will bless them. Blessing can be as simple as a smile, a greeting, learning someone's name. Our scripture lesson was the story of the Good Samaritan. And uh, didn't uh, Briella and Naomi and Sophia and Dougie do a good job of acting it out there, as Krista read? It wasn't the priest or the Levite that went out of their way to bind up the wounds of the mugged Jewish man, but a despised Samaritan, a half-breed from out of country. Yet he made himself and his resources available to help in a very simple and straightforward way. The fallen neighbor beside the road became his agenda for the day. He even ventured to tell the innkeeper he'd cover any further costs incurred until the man was better and could manage on his own. Is there a time in your life when someone was a good Samaritan to you? How did it feel? What could have been the consequences if they hadn't stopped to help? One time our family was camping in southern Manitoba, coming back from a mammoth odyssey down to California and B.C. and back. We were camping all the way in a, with a little 4x8 utility trailer pulling behind. It had rained at the provincial park the night before, and all our tents and clothes were soaked. It must have been about four inches of water in some of our tents. The next day was a Sunday, so we went to a nearby Pentecostal church. It was a largely French-speaking community. After church, one family invited us to their place for lunch and to use their dryer to dry out our soaked gear before heading on our way back towards Ontario. Like the Samaritan situation, we were from another region and our language was different, but the hospitality they showed us was so much appreciated. A very practical and heartfelt blessing. Jesus taught his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, oops, got to back up one. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Here, good deeds become the means of blessing others and prompting them to glorify God, appreciate and praise him more. Likewise, in 1 Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Here again, good deeds become the prompt for others to glorify God. 
especially remarkable when redirect retaliation. It's not that hard to do something nice for people that like you, that you relate well to, who would likely do the same for you if the situation were reversed. But what about people who are opposed to you for some reason, when you're not seeing eye to eye, when others treat you shabbily? That's the time when Christian witness especially shines through, when we're tempted to retaliate, but instead overcome evil with good. Uh, yesterday and Friday evening was a, a motorcycle course in London through learning curves, and I got my M, so praise God, it passed. But uh, a lot of the day was driving around the streets of London, and we were in a group of six, uh, five students and our instructor. And we're on uh, <clears throat> one of the roads heading south. I don't, don't think it, it might have been Wonderland. Anyway, and uh, we were in the rightmost lane, and this white SUV was in the center lane, and we're coming up to an intersection. The white SUV made a right-hand turn right in front of us. And I could see the instructor shaking her helmet side to side like that. That's just not good to do. So a lot of the course was uh, learning basically defensive driving, how to kind of compensate for other people's not being able to see you or make yourself especially visible so they can see you. So uh, in one sense, it's kind of making allowance for other people's stupidity. Uh, so I was thinking about that this morning, and I was thinking, hmm, can you zoom out for just a moment here? Let's go over to the cross here and think of making allowance for others' stupidity. Jesus was doing that on the cross. He's making allowance for my stupidity. So in a way, that's a new uh, expression for grace, uh, making allowance for others' stupidity. Praise God for the cross. The cross was a travesty, totally uncalled for. Jesus was perfectly innocent, a man who went around doing good and healing the oppressed. Yet others became envious, exposed by his truthfulness, and arranged for him to be murdered. However, even from the cross, Jesus bore no malice toward his enemies. He prayed for them. Luke 23, 34. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. White SUV does not know what it's doing. Jesus was living out what he taught. Grace in place of retaliation, getting even. Matthew 5:44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6:35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. You see the connection there. God is good and his nature is to bless, to be kind to the ungrateful and wicked. When we love our enemies, it's like we're his sons or daughters reflecting his goodness in our setting. One more Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's so natural when we're treated poorly to retaliate, to, to get back at whoever's hurting us, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But that's not Jesus' way. There's no grace in that. Soon you end up with a whole world where people are blind and toothless. But when someone is unkind to you, 
where they persecute you, instead of cursing them, can you bless them? Show them a bit of what Jesus is about. About that time, you'll discover it has to come from him through the Holy Spirit because it's not in our fallen genes. Call on him. Dig deep in God's promises. Let his life be revealed in your mortal body. Leave room for a sovereign and gracious God to be part of the equation in all your dealings. Let him settle any scores rather than being your own vigilante squad. As Paul wrote Romans 12, 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Uh, section. Giving an enemy your cloak. We're called to bless others as God has blessed us in Christ even while we were still sinners. As we bless others in his name, we invite them to glorify him. We're, we're offering them a glimpse of his love and mercy, especially to people who wouldn't expect it from us. William B. McKinley, here in the picture, was U.S. president from 1897 to 1901. During one of his campaigns, a reporter from an opposition newspaper followed him constantly and just as persistently misrepresented McKinley's views. Eventually, during this campaign, the weather became extremely cold, and even though the reporter didn't have sufficiently warm clothing, he still followed McKinley. One bitter evening, the president-to-be was riding in his closed carriage, and the young reporter sat shivering on the driver's seat outside. McKinley stopped the carriage and invited the reporter to put on his coat and ride with him inside the warm carriage. The young man, astonished, protested that McKinley knew that he was opposition and that he wasn't going to stop opposing McKinley during the campaign. McKinley knew that, but he wasn't out to seek revenge. In the remaining days of the campaign, the reporter continued to oppose McKinley, but never again did he write anything unfair or biased about the future president. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have been so good to us. You send your sunshine and rain on the just and the unjust. You sent Jesus to redeem us, to purify yourself a people ready to do good works, to point out your own goodness to those who've been blind to it before. Lord Jesus, thank you for not giving up on us, for forgiving those who nailed you to a cross, for revealing yourself to us and in us who were sinners. Move in us to declare your excellence by showing that same mercy to others. We need your help to bless them as we have been blessed by you. Amen.